0: You're finding, if you haven't already found it, Revelation 6. So we're cruising through, and this is uh, titled the Coming, the Coming Calamities. So this is the unfun part, of the beginning part of the unfun stuff. So how many of you guys like scary movies, TV shows, books? Some people say no, some people yes. I was, uh, as a kid... My grandmother took me to most of the scary movies, Jason. We never saw Friday the 13th in the theaters, or, or, or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but most of the Jason movies, Jaws, a lot of those movies, right, I kind of raise on them in there. A lot of times, right, they actually are cautionary tales, right? There's usually a lesson in there, right? Don't be promiscuous. Those people die first, right? Be Be the innocent person, right? And you're going to live. So in a sense, they are they kind of con- are consistent with a biblical message. Now, that's probably not their intent, but really what I think is, like even our tales of, of, of Little Red Riding Hood, you know, Three Little Pigs, those stories were cautionary tales as well, right? Well before movies, because they were telling you the same things. Watch out for strangers. Don't just take pe- candy from people. Don't follow them home like Hansel and Gretel, those types of things, right? So the scariness that we get from those movies. And even the ones that are like Saw, if you know what those are, they're usually some kind of, those people that he tricks into coming in and have some kind of thing. They're rich or they're powerful or whatever it is, or they've done somebody wrong, right? So they have stories to tell. They have a lesson to be learned. And so that's really what Revelation is doing here, is the writer and God, you know, God, through the writers, telling us this precautionary tale of, like, you need to get saved. You need to realize if you're one of, the, you're, you're one of my chosen people to get on board so you can avoid these types of nightmarish things that we're going to read about here and really how bad they're probably really going to be versus what's in the text. And so we're going to go ahead and read chapter six we'll read one verses one through eight so we'll read the first four seals because most everybody's probably very familiar with with those those four horsemen as we're going to get to in a few minutes but we'll go ahead and read this part and then we'll get through the rest of it as well as we as we hit the next couple points so this is what john writes in chapter six verse one then i saw the lamb open one of the seven seals and i heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder come I looked and there was a white horse, its rider held a bow, A crown was given to him and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that the people would slaughter one another. And a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, "Come," and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I read something. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, "A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine." Verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, "Come," and I looked. And there was a pale green horse, its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. So here's the main point. The opening of the seals precedes the coming of the day of the Lord. The believers... As believers, we must be prepared and be aware of what is going on. We have to be prepared so we can provide these tales and not just to scare people, but at the same time, my friend said, I would rather scare you into heaven than coddle you into hell. Right. So as, as scary as some of these things may seem, it is the reality of what is coming for people. For the earth for us whether we're living or dead when it happens we're going to be resurrected and raised at some point so we have to be aware of what's going on and take take heart though that if you're saved you are going to avoid the very worst of it all and we'll get into how if you think you're going to be here for this or not that's another part of it with we're going to be raptured before this or during this or after because right, there's all different different ideas. So if you look at your outline, I have three things. So the coming problems, that's the first eight verses. The coming persecution, which is verses 9 and 11, that's the fifth seal. And the sixth seal is going to be the coming panic. And that's verses 12 through 17. So we see we have the four horsemen named. So who are the four horsemen? I'm sure we've probably heard the term. Right, It's used... In popular society as well, but, but J- Jesus takes this scroll and he, bre- he begins to break these seals off. And so remember though that as a side note, the number seven is the number of perfection, right? So that's why there's seven seals. Have to be, everything's perfected or perfect to open these seals. And so that number reoccurs. It's mentioned several times through this book and then through the Bible as well. But chapter six tells us about six of these seven seals, and then the seventh seal, there's a pause in chapter seven, and then the, then, the, then the next one is opened. So the first four of these release the first four hum, uh, horsemen of the, the apocalypse. So this is one of the, like I said, this is one of the aspects of Revelation that most people are familiar with. right? It was a song, it was a song titled by Metallica. It was also the name of a popular wrestling team in the mid-'80s and-'90s with Ric Flair, the Anderson Brothers, and Tully Blanchard. If you like the, uh, the WCW, that I think is what it was at the time. Right? Even in the movie Tombstone, Earp quotes verse eight when he goes to hunt down the cowboys he says in death i saw a rider on a pale horse and death followed with him right so he that's when he kind of getting revenge on the 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 bad guys the cowboys but who are the four horsemen in this context in revelation what what's happening with with what we know is to understand as a tribulation and what do they represent and so when we get as we're getting into this i want to make sure that we understand certain things so If you believe in a pre tribulation rapture, that the door that John walks through is essentially the rapture. So everybody is called up with him. So all of these events are taking place after the rapture. So we, the church, as believers, we're not here. So that's one way to look at it. Right? And so everything that happens is going to happen on earth, and we're kind of like watching. Right? We're watching what's happening. So there's another theory where, where if you're mid-tribulation rapture, so at the three-and-a-half-year point, or the post-tribulation rapture, so we live all the way through all the, ba- all the calamities, we're living here on earth just like everybody else, and then we leave before the day of the, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, we're, we're taken up before then, right? So we don't experience God's wrath. And so my friend and I, we talk about this, we were talking the other day, Really what it comes down to is what you kind of judge as as God's wrath. So if he's killing the fourth of the earth, is is that bad? Is that his full wrath? Or is that just kind of things to come? That's people doing, just being people. And his wrath on the day of judgment is going to be far, 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 far worse for those people who are not believers than we could ever fathom. So... The first one pre-trib, we get out of here, we're just watching the other ways. We are living through these things and potentially probably being martyred along the way before our belief because we don't believe the Antichrist. You can make your case for either one. So wherever you fall on the scale is totally okay. It is not an entrance exam question to get into heaven. Right, now, I am a post-trib, pre-wrath kind of person, that we are going to be gone before the day of the wrath, but we're going to live through this. That's that's where I sit. If you guys want to believe me, be, a lot of times Baptists are generally pre-trib, partially just because of historical, but also the left behind movies. That's fine, right? That is okay. That is because it's totally plausible that that's that's what's going on, right? So I'm here just to kind of lay these things out for you. So we have the first seal open as the white horse. And so the white horse represents the Antichrist. So some people try to link this to being Jesus, but Jesus comes on a white horse later. And so if you watch and read everything with the Antichrist, he does like the opposite or tries to pretend like he's Jesus as much as possible to trick people. So he wants to look like Jesus as much as he can to get people on board with him. Right, but he is the Antichrist. So this most scholars have agreed that this first horse is actually the Antichrist, right? So the beginning of the tribulation period is when the Antichrist stands up and he takes over, he does all these things. And so he is coming out to conquer because he is a ruler who would come and destroy the city and sanctuary mentioned in Daniel 9:26. Right? So this is going back to the Old Testament. And there's a picture, like it's sort of a medieval. Depiction of, of the four horsemen, by the way. <clears throat> and so with the arrival of the Antichrist, right, he's the first step. And everything else starts falling into place of what's happening. So the red horse is the second seal. He represents war. And this, is on, this, is, this war is on a scale that no one has ever seen before. We've had world wars, right, but they're still kind of limited in the sense where not everybody's fighting. But here it says even that... So people would slaughter him, right? The peace has been taken from the earth. And people would slaughter one another. Now part of this is people choosing sides for Christ, against Christ. They're picking sides. They're actually starting to fight. They fight each other. And so we're fighting against the allies. So if the church is here, right, we're fighting because we know who this person is. We're trying to warn people as much as possible. If, we're, if we as the church believers who aren't here, the other people who are left are now figuring things out, right? They're kind of proven by the rapture, like, oh, half my family's gone because they were believers and they're gone. So now I, whatever they were teaching, whatever they were trying to tell me in Sunday school for all those years is legit, right? I thought it was a fairy tale, but it actually happened. Okay, I'm on board now, right? But now they have to, maybe as a punishment, they have to live through this piece. But there will be no peace going on, right? The horseman has been given to take power, the power to take the peace away. So we're going to have these constant wars. And so the black horse is the third one. He represents famine. And of course, with all these wars going on, right, fields are going to be destroyed. When the Civil War came through, through, all through the South and everything else, they destroyed everything they could. They were fighting in people's farm fields. If you read the Battle of Gettysburg, they were fighting in, in the Peach Orchard, these other places that... We're just there. They were somebody's house, right? So this is what's going to happen. All the farmers are going to have to go fight. Everybody who would take care of animals, they have to be, they have to be gone or they'll be killed. So now the fields will lay empty. The barn full of animals will die or starve. Food production will decrease and eventually stop. And so the cost of wheat and barley are compared as well. So... It says a, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley, right? Because wheat is a better product than barley. So now you're faced with two choices, right? You're faced with two choices here. So your day's wages, that's what a denarius is usually understood as. So you're going to, have to pay your good money that you worked for, for either a little bit of wheat, which is better for you, but you can only make so much bread. You can maybe you know a loaf or two, whatever. Or you could get three, lo- three, three quarts of barley, which maybe you can make three or four loaves of barley for bread, but it's not as healthy for you. So you can have less healthy food or more food that's not good for you. So it's kind of the equivalence of I can go buy a whole bunch of groceries at, um, you know, or I can buy, I can spend $70 at McDonald's and I can get a whole bunch of food. You know, I can get seventy cheeseburgers, or I can spend seventy dollars and get like a bag of apples and you know some milk and some other things, but it's considerably less. So now you're faced with these decisions on how am I going to feed myself and my family with what the limited resources we have, and I'm paying all this money for it. All right so we're forced to make these decisions <clears throat> but however, there's good news if we read where he says. Do not harm, the last, the last part of verse 6, do not harm the oil and the wine. And so it sort of seems like a weird, a weird statement to put in there. So there's a couple different options that scholars think. And so really what it is, is there is at least, at very least, there's certain things that are protected. right? So the, the oil, which comes from olive trees at the time, that's what it's referencing with, with oil. You're getting it from olive oil. And the wine, pre- the wine comes from vineyards. So he's putting a hedge around these important things. So nobody really knows what it means. So there's a couple different options. So it either means the poor people are going to suffer quicker than the wealthier people because they have olive orchards and they can take care of their stuff. They're, they're growing their own food, essentially. Or, right, does he mean that as literal plants? But I don't think so. Because in Romans 11, right, Revelation is full of symbolism, And the Bible has all kinds of pictures and vivid things, and people who know, they know when they hear certain words or phrases, they link things to what it actually means, right? So when they say olive and vineyards, in Romans 11, Paul explains that Gentiles have been grafted on to the olive tree. That is the covenant that was given to Israel. Needs to say, the olive tree in the above passage is symbolic, and that's Romans 11. It represents something else, right? So given the overall context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's the context of God's covenants with the Israelites, and it appears that the various parts of the olive tree represent the following. There's the slide. The natural branches represent individual Israelites, so Jews. The wild olive trees, or olive shoots represent the Gentiles. So people from other nations. And the root of this tree represents God's covenant promises to the patriarchs. And so when he's referencing the oil or the olive, the plant that makes the olive oil, he's referencing, I think, the Jews, the people, the covenant people. And to go further, and also the olive tree metaphor for Israel is used other places as well. Right? It's used in Jeremiah 11. 16 it says the lord once called you a green olive tree beautiful with good fruit but with the roar of the great tempest he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed so here we have other places as well that link israel to representing being represented by the olive tree and the vineyard also represents god's people isaiah 5 2 says the parable he says he dug it and cleared it of stones. so they talk about the land the vineyard and planted it with choice vines he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he would a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That symbolism, that story is about God's work in creating the people, the Israelite nation, and how they turned against him, essentially. Right? They became the wild grapes. But he references the vineyard as pe- being people, being his people. And so again, Jeremiah twelve ten says, Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. So here it seems like God is referencing his people. And also in John 15, the people are also, Jesus references the vine, the vine dresser, and we are ingrafted to him. So to me, this represents God's people, the oil and the wine. So everybody else is going to be suffering, but the horseman cannot harm his people. And so whether that means that we are still here as the church, whether this happens today or tomorrow, right? We'll still be here, but we have a sort of a hedge of protection around us. Or the people who now become believers during the tribulation are now protected because they become his people, right? They become into the covenant. So either way, this is the good news. This is the application for this is that God will limit the effects of the events for his people, right? God will limit the effects of the events for his people, God always keeps it from being as bad as it could be for us, at least until the end day, the last day of the Lord, when everything will end, right? That will be the calamitous event of, of all events. So God is still in control of all these events, right? Because who's opening the seals? Jesus. He's opening these seals. He's the one commanding them to come forth. the angels who work for God. They're all under God's control, those people are limiting and controlling what's happening. His power is on full display. But now we see the fourth horseman, the pale horse that represents death. And Hades or hell will follow with him. So death parades on his horse and the realm of the departed follows like a street sweeper behind him. Right, So he's, he's just kind of going by and he's picking up people that have died, that have been killed. He's picking them up and they're, they're going to Hades, which was the... the, the the resting place of all the people waiting for the resurrection. Different than per- purgatory. It's not purgatory, by the way. Right? He's picking up the debris of the fall the and the imprisoning. He's an imprisoning them in the shadowy world. Right? This grave will be behind him. And again, this is where they go to wait. So war, famine—they all bring this death on a huge scale. Right? He's death says he has the authority over one fourth of the earth. Now, part of is how do we read this? Are these sequential events? And so people are dying in the war. People are dying from the famine. And then death comes and gets more people. Or is this kind of happening and death kind of comes by and picks up everybody? Like Monty Python, if you've seen the, where he pick up the dead people on the cart. Or he's just kind of going and grabbing them. It's not clear 100%. I couldn't find anything if this is people die here, people die here, people die here, people die here. So that means a lot of people are dying? Or all the people are kind of counted in the last, the last fourth seal? Either way, like a horror movie, a lot of people are going to die at some point, right? This is where the scary part. And so we see this happening, and so we have to, if we're living through this, it's calamitous. It's very terrible. But this fifth seal awaits us, right? And so there's a little bit of a small break in the action. And so John says in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given and so they cried out. So John draws our attention to this, this altar. And underneath, underneath that, he sees the souls of the martyrs. There should be a picture I have on the slide. There you go. That's, that's a medieval depiction of this one. Um, so you have Jesus, you have the angel, and you have the souls underneath that altar looking, and they're crying out. How long, O Lord? Right, how long is this going to happen to our brethren, our brothers and sisters, that are going to have to live through this. Like, we know we died, but we're, we're up here now, and they're, they're stuck. They're living through these things. Right, how long do I have to endure this? How long are we going to wait for, to get revenge? And God says, just wait a little, little, little while longer. Right, just wait. And of course, for us, we talked about this before, but waiting is usually the hardest part. It takes, why can't you just do it now? We're waiting I'm tired. I don't want to see any more people go through these terrible things, right? Just like with COVID. I want COVID to be over. I'm tired of people being freaked out about it. I'm tired of the arguments. I'm tired of all these things that happen because we, we just need to fix it. But it takes time. So the how long, O oh Lord, is a common refrain or cry in the Old Testament, especially when people are just down on their knees and they don't know what else to do. So they're just say, like, God, come on, fix it, please. And again, it's not over yet, but soon it will be. This, this tribulation, it's not over, but it will be soon. Because God says there is a number. Not everybody who's saved or realizes they are saved is saved yet. So the good news is that God knows how many people there are to be in heaven finally. Right? Again, we see his sovereignty and his power. He's ruling over his kingdom. He says, I know exactly how many people. Are coming in, right? Your name—he knows whose names are in the book is in the book of life, and he knows the number of those people. So if it looks like a big ledger book, right? It goes from one to a jillion, however big the book is, however many names there are, that's what it is. And until you know, Tommy Jenkins is the last person in the in the list, or you know, with a Z, you know, Zimmerman or something like that. Tommy Zimmerman—he's the last person on the list. Then they'll be done. So once Tommy Zimmerman is born, he gets saved, everything's done, we're all good. But until that happens, we've got to wait. We have to wait for him to get on board with it or be born or whatever, however it works out. But we see God's grace at work. He says, look, there's an end to this. This is not, this is not, a, never, this is not a forever deal. We don't have to de- endure all of this stuff, all this terrible sin forever. It's going to end at some point. He considers the martyrs and his witnesses his protected people. And his wrath is going to go against the inhabitants of the earth who are not his people. And so this term is used to designate the people, the inhabitants of the earth, as a term used to designate those people who follow the beast and receive his mark. Right? They are the earthly people who are in the flesh, essentially. And meanwhile, when these people are waiting, the souls under the altar are waiting. They are given a white robe, which is it serves two things as a pledge of future and final glory. And it's consoling proof that no judgment awaited them. Right. When we're saved, we know that we all this stuff in this book or a lot of this stuff, especially towards the last few chapters, do not apply to us. If you are truly saved, you are getting out of it. Now, it doesn't take consolation when you know maybe your brother or sister or whoever is going to go through that. And again, we need to be honest with them, not just want to scare them, but try to make them understand what awaits. And why it's imperative that they learn about who God is, they accept Christ as their King, their Lord, and their Savior. Because we can take a breath and go, okay, this was bad, but it's not going to be as bad. And we, or the people who become Christians during this period in this tribulation, are going to have to endure, right? So these people who bring death to God's people, though, the people who are causing the problems, they will bring calamity on themselves, and this is going to cause some severe panic, as we're going to see in the sixth seal. And so the sixth seal, this coming panic in the last five verses, flips everything upside down verse 12, he says that I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black. The entire moon became like blood. The stars fell out of the earth. The sky was split apart like a scroll, scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Imagine sitting here and watching the mountains basically be plucked off the earth like a carrot, like you're pulling a carrot out of the ground. Right? Just like whoop. Like where did it go? Oh, no. This is not normal, right? The mountains don't go up. Or imagine the earthquake happening and it opens up a giant chasm out here in the middle of everything and now we have a new smaller Grand Canyon to add to our repertoire of lakes and one out of here, Red Oaks, right? This, the natural order becomes unnatural disorder. And so... The earth is relatively stable now. We live in sort of right outside the earthquake zone. So we, we know we've experienced a few probably even, was it last summer? I think it was even last summer when we had those few because few, we were playing Monopoly or something like that. And Veronica was like, is the earth moving? Because like, I think our lights started moving. And we didn't, most of us didn't feel it. She felt it and she saw the thing. Then we looked and said there was a whatever, four point whatever or something, earthquake. So we've lived through it, so we know. So this picture here, though, is from the artist uh, Francis Danby. It was done about 1830. So this is his depiction of this sixth seal about what's happening. You see the upheaval. And, it, and if you can look, I don't know, it's kind of hard to see from here, but we can pull it up later. But you see people hiding and cowering in the rocks, trying to get away from everything that's happening. And I'm sitting here just imagining all these things happen. Right? And again, earthquakes, though. So I know that I've talked to people here, and if you guys lived here, you know, that earthquake in 1988 during the World Series, they said it was filled all the way down here. And that's roughly, what, 400 miles, 350 or something like that, right? It's a ways away. Uh, we were at my in-law's house, and we were staying. It was, like, late at night, like 11 o'clock, and I was up doing homework. And all of a sudden, and they have a big porch. The house, the house we're staying at, has a big porch. All of a sudden, it was, deathly, it was dead quiet middle of the night. I hear this whoosh go through, right? And the house kind of rippled. And so I looked it up the next morning, and it said there was like a three-point something or other, whatever or aftershock because they, they were having tons and tons of aftershocks. I mean, it felt like a Mack truck drove right past me on the porch. That's how much power it was. And that was a fairly low one as well, right? Other places have seven, eight, nine magnitude earthquakes sometimes, right? We see it in some of the places. So these are terrible, but this great earthquake is how they describe it, is even worse, a violent earthquake. The mountains disappearing and all of a sudden the sky rolling up, though, the, scar- the stars are gone. All of this represents something extremely terrible and out of the ordinary. So again, one of the questions always comes down to how you interpret Revelation of far- as far as what's literal like literal literal and what's figurative or what's symbolic and so you kind of have to take it and kind of figure out so either way the description here just like everything else it's not good if the stars actually fall out of the sky if all these things happen the sun blacks out that's horrifying in itself if it's representative of something actually worse than putting it in terms that we can understand it it's going to be much worse all right, so we want to make sure, and again, this is not to scare you, but it's to get our minds wrapped around what the power that God has over everything, over his world. And so this vivid language is used to get our attention and make people perk up and listen. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times, right, this gets drilled in our heads so many times that it becomes noise because it's like, well, wow, it's not going to happen that way. Because whether this is literal or symbolic, we see that these things happen that happen are enough to make anyone panic. Everybody panics. The kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person, they hide in caves among the rocks and the mountains. Right? So nobody is free from this, this calamity. Nobody gets out of jail from this at this point. And they said, the people said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I hope this mountain falls on me, so I die, so God can't punish me. <laughs> right? That's how bad it is. All of a sudden, they understand who is doing the shaking and moving. Paul says in Romans that everybody knows and understands about God, or they know enough, but they just usually repress it, they push it down, they ignore it. But here, this is the thing to get everybody, oh, this is happening. Right, the sun, the stars, the moon—they go out. Right, what do we leave? What do we do when we leave a room? We turn the lights out, and that's really what this is. The sun goes out; it's we're done. Whoop. You know, sometimes they do the last calls, or sometimes the theaters—they'll flash lights two or three times. And say, All right, everybody needs to get out. That's what—that's what's going on here, and there's no escape. There's no escape now. All men are reduced to a common denominator, quaking in fear before the judgment of the God who alone is sovereign. So again, death is preferable to facing the Lamb and His wrath. And that's why I think that what we understand is how bad this is has no comparison to what, how bad it's going to be. Right? The word wrath is, just, is left for a special judgment. All the other stuff that goes on is, is terrible. It's bad. But it's not what he considers wrath. Maybe what we consider wrath. Right? It's a different, different scale. All these people are hiding. They're trying to get away from it. The God who has always been characterized by grace and creation and the Lamb who has been characterized by grace and redemption are suddenly depicted in their eternal anger against all that is sinful and evil. Right? That is why he's angry. Because people, these people are sinful. And so the, the bill has come due, essentially, of the world. So how do we avoid God's wrath? How do we do this? We, how do we remain confident even through all of these calamities and even the, the calamities that we live through even? Right? But we even understand that even this COVID thing, there's going to be more worse things than that. Right? So if we're scared now, we're going to be way scared later. How do we know that even through this that we face that God still loves us? Simple. Place your faith in Jesus' work on the cross. He paid for for you, he paid your debt to put you under that altar if, if that's who it represents. To bring you, give you that white robe and that promise that you are saved. That is what he did on the cross. That is why he came, to make sure the people who are named in the book of life are in there. He bought all those people in that book. And we can put our trust in the almighty God. Because the description of the events are something we can't fathom of how bad it's going to be. The flip side is also true because the descriptions of your eternal life in heaven... The new earth and new heaven are going to be undescribably and incomprehensibly glory, more glorious and awesome than you could really actually get around. Right? The day we go to heaven, the day we live there, everything happens, it's going to be so much more greater than we could ever even figure out. So we have to be patient. right? A little while longer is what he tells the souls in the fifth soul, the seal. Enduring whatever God allows, while we're here on this earth, whatever He's allowing, we know that His anger is being directed at our enemies, and because they are His enemies, so we're not necessarily always being punished. Sometimes we just get caught up in the ramifications of what He's doing to them, and sometimes it's payback to them for us because of what they did to us. But we need to repent. You need to repent of your sins. Fear God now and follow him before it's too late. Because that's the other thing. If you go with everything that happens, God is still allowing time for all the people who are in the book of life to become followers of Christ. So there's chances and chances and chances. We see this grace. It's like, well, how terrible is that? Well, no, he's waiting until the last person gets saved. So you have time, but we don't know how much time we have. So don't wait around going, I got plenty of time. Because you know, I'm a procrastinator, I do that. Homeworks due on Sunday at, new, at midnight. It's noon, I'll start at noon. No lie I do. I've done that. <laughs> right? But it's not the optimal way to live, right? Because I get bad, you get bad grades. You turn it in as terrible. They're like, "What did you do? Did you even write a sentence here? No, I didn't, apparently. But that's how it works, right? Don't wait to the last minute. But we are saved. We who are saved can take solace in the fact that even though this may be terrible, whatever is going on here, it's nothing compared to what awaits the people who, need, who do not repent. And so as we go out this week, right, as we think about this, as we're living our lives Right, this isn't as bad as it as it, as it can be. We know it's bad for us, and it's, so everybody is. It's a significant emotional event, whatever we have going on. So I don't mean to cheapen anything. But think about how blessed we are that we are one of God's chosen people. Right, that we have been given the ability, and we have been given the past, essentially, if you want to look at it that way, to avoid these things. So as the band comes up, we we sing our songs. Right, think about this stuff. Think about the people you need to tell the gospel to as well, that they can avoid this. So let's go ahead and stand. We'll transition. We'll go ahead and stand and sing our last couple songs.